Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, and that's sumatisparks.com, spelled S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks, as in Sparks are Flying. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight, I'm really happy to have as my guest, Janelle Marie Pierce. She's the executive director of the STD Project and the founder of the Herpes Activist Network called HANDS. She's also the spokesperson for PositiveSingles.com, a dating site for people with, uh, who test positive for herpes. And she's also uh, uh, co-chair and involved in so many other different organizations and coalitions, too many to name here. Um, so I want to find out more about that when we talk. So welcome to the show, Janelle. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be on your show. So glad to have you here. So um, the first question I have for you is how, how did you become such an expert in STDs and STIs? How does one become a, the queen of this domain? Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Isn't that funny, right? I, my friends call me the STD whisperer. So, um, well, I guess I went away about it in a non-traditional sense. Um, when I was 16 years old, I contracted genital herpes. And so that entered in my first experience with an STI and genital herpes is a long-term forever infection. So I still have it. HSV2 is the type that I have. And um, from there, though, it was a long time before I started doing this work professionally. Um, when I was 29 years old, I quit my job as a public accountant and launched the stdproject.com. And so now that's been seven years, um, almost seven years since then. And essentially, all of my formal education, I have a BBA and an MBA in honors accountancy. All of that is not in public health, um, but by way of extensive research and writing and really just immersing myself in STI education and awareness and safer sex and prevention and things like that, um, I've now become somewhat of an expert in the realm of STIs and STDs in particular. So my own personal experience, um, because it was so rough initially once I was diagnosed and it was traumatic and um, I was stigmatized by my general practitioner at the time, the whole thing mm. was really rough. It took me years to move past that to like, decipher that the stigma and the misconceptions and all of the negative things you hear about what it means to live with an STI, what it's like to live with an STI, and who the people are who have STIs, none of those things are actually uh, representative of the people who have STIs. But I didn't know that at the time. And so that was the energy and initial effort behind launching the STD project and moving out of public accounting into doing this realm of work, which is just totally, you know, night and day, obviously, but it was because I had finally gotten to a place professionally and personally, relationship-wise, and I was just, I was doing well. I was succeeding and in this good, I felt like I was in this good, holistic, happy, peaceful place, and I had come to terms with 
all of these misconceptions and the stigma, and I wanted to be able to help other people to do that a lot quicker and to move past that diagnosis and to find not only just the practical, factual resources, but also resources that address like the gray area of living with an STI, dealing with stigma and dating and what that means in terms of disclosure and or risk, so on and so forth. So now seven years later and it's doing good. We got about, we receive about 300,000 visits on the STD project proper per month. And then um, we also have a podcast and a YouTube and we've just launched a herpes activist network. And so we're doing good, going strong and continuing in the advocacy realm. Good for you. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, yeah. So how did you personally move past your own feelings? Um, Well, first of all, what feelings came up for you when you were first diagnosed and then how did you move past that? When I was first diagnosed, my mom recalls the story because I was 16, um, a junior in high school, and I had my first outbreak. I get, I, I get actual outbreaks, whereas a lot of people with genital herpes don't um, get outbreaks at all and never even know that they have the infection. And um, I had my first outbreak, and first outbreaks are usually the worst in terms of the severity and how they feel and the duration and such. And so um, I knew something was going on, but I didn't know exactly what. So I finally showed my mom, and then she scheduled an appointment with my general practitioner. And she tells the story that the practitioner was horrible, really stigmatizing at the time, um, didn't provide me of any resources or facts or statistics, any kind of even base level information, just gave me a prescription for Valtrex and sent me on the way. He also m- made sure to mention that it was the worst case of herpes that he had ever seen in his entire life. Oh. So not only oh. do I have the stigmatized, horrible infection, now I have the worst version. So all the things that run mm. through a teenager's mind and that you hear in pop culture and media about having an STI, that people are trashy and slutty and damaged goods and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now I'm like in my head I was the very worst version of them and um, Mm. I cried all the way home in the car and told my mom Mm. I will never nobody will ever love me again I'll never have a partner Mm. I won't be able to get married I mean it just I was 100% convinced that that was the end of the world in the sense you know that it was really the end of being able to move forward in life so for me that experience Mm. was awful and all of the things that people hear just were what I'd heard I had a very limited sexual health education, and I came from a very rural and conservative area, so it was all abstinence-only kind of approach, and so I didn't know that that Mm -hmm. risk was relevant to me and that it would be okay, and I knew none of that. So, yeah, my my initial response was absolutely awful, which is really common for most people. They feel that same way after a diagnosis. Yeah. And then what did you do in your life to be able to move through that, to be as free as you are today? So for me, it was a super long process because I didn't have those resources available and people didn't utilize that I'm dating myself, but people didn't utilize the web in the same kind of way in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And, um, you know, now it's a lot more accessible and activists and people doing this work and stuff. There still are a few of us, but I digress. So for me, it was realizing that none of my relationships were ever impacted as a result of my STI. So, and I've, ha- I've had other STIs as well. So who admits that out loud? But that's, that's me, raises, raises her hand. So anyways, mm-hmm. I realized that 
um, my relationships were impacted. My partners didn't actually care. It wasn't, it didn't impede on the potential. It didn't impede on the type of people I could date or what kind of sex life I could have and me being able to enjoy my sex life and having um, just wonderful, rich, rewarding relationships. So that was step one realizing that all of those things that I assumed about living with a long-term infection, a forever infection, weren't true. And then secondarily, I also, uh, like I said, I was doing well professionally. And so I think I had, I had a level of confidence about who I was, and I had kind of found my mm-hmm. own self-assurance and um, self-worth, and I defined myself in my own way based on those achievements and what I was doing professionally as well as those personal relationships. So together mm-hmm. as a whole, that kind of put me in a place to say, none of this makes any sense, and why did I feel this way for so long, and why did I let this take over, and why did I let this mm-hmm. overcome me in a way and define me for so many years? And I thought, this is just total junk, but it took me many, many years to kind of get to that point in this slow-mo way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a role model and being so transparent about it today. I'm sure you help a lot of other people have permission to talk about it as well. Um, and I, I hope do want so. To move on I hope if that. I can just. Yeah. Oh, I just was going to say, I I hope so. I hope I can absolutely help people to feel empowered and to feel better about it and whatever that means for them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be as public as I am, but at least Mm -hmm. to be able to move forward and continue with their life in a way that the infection and infection doesn't have to define them. That would be, that's my, my absolute goal. Right. And so let's move on to that um, because you'd really do need to tell any partner that you're with and my listeners are interested in polyamory and open relationships and they may have multiple partners in their life and they may have new partners pretty regularly. So what kind of suggestions can you give to people for telling a new partner that you have herpes? So I feel like there are a couple of things to keep in mind and kind of like place in your head as steps or like pointers for having that disclosure. Because of course we ethically and morally, we need to tell our partners, if you have an infection um, or herpes in particular, but any kind of infection, you need to tell them before putting them at risk before you get sexually active Mm -hmm. with them, right? Engaging in sexual activities. Mm -hmm. However, that can look different for different people, but I usually try and tell folks to, Well, let me step backward, actually. There's two trains of thought. Some people like to disclose right up front, right out the gate. As soon as they meet someone new, whether it's online or whether it's in person, they put it right out there, like all my cards on the table, so you make a decision from here. And the idea behind that mindset is that then at least you're not invested in that individual. You haven't started to develop feelings, and you feel less hurt if there is a rejection. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the second school of thought around the timing of disclosing is to wait a little bit until you've started to develop a relationship and then you can see the relationship moving into a sexual activity kind of realm and then letting them Mm -hmm. know. And the reason behind Mm -hmm. that process and that school of thought is um, this sometimes is a very intimate and very personal conversation that you wouldn't want to just tell everybody and their brother. So you want to make sure you've established some level of trust And you may not need to disclose if you don't see the relationship going in that direction. So maybe you don't have to disclose Mm -hmm. to everyone until it gets to that point. So Mm -hmm. I think either way works. 
um, that's up to the individual and what they feel most comfortable with. And a lot of times people will try both. They'll try one approach and see if that's a good fit. And then if they don't really like that, try another and maybe go back and forth depending on the situation, how they met the partner um, or partners and where they expect the relationship or where they're hoping it, hoping it leads. So that said, in terms of that disclosure, the conversation never gets super easy. I mean, we're always and I think it's because naturally we're risk averse to some extent and we're worried about that rejection. Nobody wants to be rejected for any manner of things at any point in time. We all want to be accepted and have people understand us and embrace us. I mean, that's this true, I think, base desire that we all have as humans to some extent. And so when you mm-hmm. add this kind of traumatic stigmatized issue and concern and we're so worried and petrified of somebody saying, nope, that's gross, or having the reactions that we hear in culture, pop culture and media, and really bad educational systems and things. So that's where everyone's so nervous about it. And it's just, it is, it's an intimate thing in detail about ourselves that does have an opportunity to, to, to make somebody say, okay, not right now, or it's not going to work at all. Um, that said, though, we all experience rejection to some respect in, in, in all aspects of life all the time. So we have to, I think the better we are at getting used to that or accepting it to and, and appreciating it and respecting that not everybody is going to be a yes and that's totally okay. Um, but there are going to be people who are yeses and so move on to that kind of situation. But in terms of the actual process itself, I think like a a quiet place that is – that has not a lot of distractions. I'm not opposed to people doing this over text in person and being able to make direct eye contact um, can be better, but that's not always safe for folks. So it just depends Mm -hmm. on whether that is a safe option, Um, but definitely not distractions with children or in public places. I don't think is very fair because you're putting someone in a position to have to react in a way that might not actually be their natural response just because they're in a Mm -hmm. public environment. So like a quiet, safe space in someone's home. And I always preferred to do it at the individual's home. Like I would send a message like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Do you have a few minutes? Can I stop by your house if if I'm at that level Mm -hmm. and I already know where they live and things like that? So, um, Mm -hmm. again, you have to suss out where you're at in the relationship. And then I'd pop in and let them know the in the I, I hate to say the best way because sometimes it just comes out and you're a hot mess because if it is a very emotional thing you may not be able to curb that emotion but if the if you can do it in the most practical and matter of fact way that helps set the stage for this isn't necessarily some giant big horrible emotional thing if you're handling it in a logical practical way, then you're ushering it and opening the door for somebody else to do the same, for their response to be in kind. So as practical and just simple as you can state it, you do do not have to and are not obligated to ever tell anyone how you contracted it unless that's exactly, unless that's part of the story that you want to share, but nobody Mm -hmm. is um, allowed or nobody is required to have that information. That is not a responsibility that somebody has to have take, take on. Mm -hmm. And so I, and then also I like to provide a little bit of like some additional facts and information, like what that means in terms of risk, how I may be managing the infection at the time. Am I taking suppressive therapy or preventative meds? um, And, or does that reduce risk of transmission and then state like, you know, I see this relationship, maybe this would be the first part, but I see this relationship heading in this direction and there's ways that we can reduce risk and I'm open to safer sex practices and things. And then I like to leave it at, 
you know, I understand that this might be a heavy thing to consider and you may need some time to think about it. And so then I'd like to exit stage left basically and allow that person some time while also saying like there's some resources in places online that you can look and maybe give one website or two and say like, please do whatever research you need and feel necessary is necessary. And then also you're welcome to circle back with questions. That sounds really nice. like clinical, but if you can do it in that kind of way and then allow that person, however much time they need a day or two. And if you haven't heard from them, I mean, I think at that point you could probably say, how are you feeling about our conversation? Um, with mm-hmm. the understanding that they may not be feeling great about it, but also in hopes that they are going to respond thoughtfully and empathetically. You should never expect a cruel response or hateful behavior in response to you disclosing this personal information about you. Just like if you disclosed anything else that's sensitive and personal about your life, you would expect somebody to react at least in a kind and empathetic way, and at that point they could decide whether or not that's for them. And, um, and then I think mm-hmm. you let it go. You let it be and say, you know, if it's, if it's a positive and they want to pursue the relationship, awesome, high five. Um, and if not, it's not, it's really not personal. It really doesn't reflect on who you are and where they feel about how they feel about you. Right. Well, you know, I personally run in circles with, uh, you know, polyamorous people and people that have multiple partners and go to play parties. So I'm surprised to hear that in 2018, that there's still people who wouldn't want to date someone with herpes. (laughs) So I know I come from a different part of the world than most people, but is that still pretty prevalent where someone might not want to date another person just because they have genital herpes? Well, I wouldn't say it was prevalent. I mean, I've never actually had a no as a result of disclosing. However, I Mm -hmm. work with people from all different, whether they have one partner, multiple partners, and whatnot. And every once in a while you do hear that, that they just close to someone and the person was just like, you know, I appreciate it. Thanks for being honest, but I'm not sure that that's something I want to consider at this time. Um, And every Mm -hmm. once in a while too, I hear like somebody gets a really horrible reaction, like, ew, that's gross and no thanks or something strange. But Mm -hmm. I think especially in, in really healthy polyamorous circles and communities, there's already a level of communication that happens that's even a little bit more than monogamous relationships. There has to be, yeah. when, it's, when it's done well, there has to be that open communication and back and forth, that constant ongoing consent and dialogue about what mm-hmm. the expectations are and what, you're, what you want to do and how you want to pursue that. And, I mean, especially when it comes to risk, you know, you may be um, – uh, fluid bonded with one partner, and then you may decide to use protection with all other partners, and that has to be disclosed and talked about. And so I think I think my assumption, I guess, which isn't necessarily fair, because I'm sure that this isn't the case with every relationship that's polyamorous and non-monogamous, but in ethical non-monogamy, I'm assuming like it's, it's just there's a lot more of that constant risk conversation. And, there, and that makes it to where mm-hmm. it's like when you have those conversations more regularly, they become normalized, they become more comfortable, mm-hmm. and it's not as scary of a prospect. Like there's still, of course, some, and so, some inherent fear and worry that someone is just going to not want to pursue you especially if you're super into them I mean you just you hope that they're going to be a yes but that happens Mm -hmm. and then you move forward and you shake it off kind of situation so yeah I mean I it's to me it's a little bit silly like that somebody would say no but that's not fair because I want to be 
I need to be open and understanding that that's anyone's choice at any point in time. Um, but that right. really is just my personal experience and what I hear from the majority of our readers and, and listeners and things is that that's not normally the case. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, I want to ask some questions about, about it. Um, and then I do want to get into some other STIs and STDs as well. Uh, and also some of the organizations that you work with. So, um, but my first question is, uh, there's this thing I've heard of called asymptomatic shedding. So, in other words, you can contract herpes technically from somebody who doesn't have a sore. Um, so they don't have a symptom, they're asymptomatic, but some of the cells might still um, get on the other person, um, for lack of a better word. And then also, do um, suppressive drugs minimize the asymptomatic shedding? Can you talk about that topic? Yeah, for sure. So asymptomatic shedding, yes, occurs when the virus comes to the surface of the skin from where it lies dormant regularly at the nerve endings, um, whether it's at the base of the spine or the base of the neck, depending on if it's oral or if it's genital. And um, so the virus reactivates and sheds some some live virus cells, and that's at, at the skin at the surface level. And that happens periodically um, from during or for on anybody, I guess, in anyone's body that has HSV, HSV 1 or 2. This happens with both oral and genital HSV um, and both types. And both types can be in both directions. So you can have um, HSV-1 genitally, and you can have HSV-2 orally. So they go in both through, go both places. Anyways, so um, this viral shedding is actually how most people contract herpes because the majority mm. of people actually don't get regular outbreaks. So, and if you think about it, regular outbreaks, even though sometimes they can be kind of minimal, most people, when they have an outbreak, there still is some discomfort. So they're not going mm-hmm. to typically want to engage in sexual activities. Um, right. But if somebody's virally shedding, there's no way to tell. You can't tell. There's no way to mm-hmm. know. You can't feel it. You can't see it on the body. Um, so there is that risk, even if somebody doesn't have an active outbreak. Now, the risk is, in terms of percentage-wise, so like, Herpes is um, not as easy to contract as like the common cold or the flu, um, but it is easier to contract than some fluid-borne infections because you can use a condom or barriers and you can still contract herpes because all of the skin might not be covered. And um, mm-hmm. in terms of why people contract it and where they where they contract it. So this is going to be kind of a subset, but I think this is kind of valuable information. So you can touch Mm -hmm. somebody's outbreak and not necessarily contract the infection. You can touch Mm -hmm. someone's skin that's virally shedding and not necessarily contract the infection. So it's not that every time there is viral shedding happening and you touch the skin where that viral shedding is happening, then you're going to immediately have herpes. Herpes needs an entry point into the body. And the entry points in the body and where you see it happening most regularly, although this happens with like wrestlers and things, but this will make sense in a second, but is the entry points are where mucous membranes reside. So we have mucous Mm -hmm. membranes in our anus, our entire vulva, um, the urethra, the like tip of the penis, and our eyes, our nose, our ears, our mouth. These are all mucous Mm -hmm. membranes. Mucous membranes is just a fancy way of saying porous 
porous skin, porous tissue that's intended. Mm-hmm. The goal of the mucous membrane is it's a spot that's supposed to trap unwanted pathogens and bacteria. And then your immune system, while it's trapped in these porous tissues, the immune system comes and attacks it and then kills whatever infection is happening. However, our immune system mm-hmm. can't fight the herpes viruses. So then the herpes virus enters the system through those mucous membranes. Our immune system is not able to combat it. And then now we have the infection. So Mm-hmm. For example, like I get outbreaks on my butt cheeks and I can mm-hmm. wipe my butt cheek with my hand or brush it or something as I'm getting dressed and I don't have herpes all over my hands, but that's because right. I don't have tiny cuts or tears or mucous membranes on my hands. So the same right. applies and that's kind of a, a very long answer to your question, but that's also why viral shedding is something to be aware of. It's absolutely a yes. Yeah. You don't have to have an outbreak to contract the infection, but it doesn't necessarily mean somebody is contagious at all times, and it doesn't mean it's necessarily uber easy to contract it just because viral shedding is happening. So it's like, I don't know, it's six to one, half a dozen of the other, I guess. And so do taking immunosuppressant drugs like Valtrex does that prevent the asymptomatic shedding or reduce it, or is it about the same? You just don't get the outbreak. That's right. I forgot the second part of your question. Thank you so much for reminding me. So, yes, um, if you were taking antivirals as suppressive therapy, which means you're taking a pill every day or maybe two pills a day, mm-hmm. depending on what you're prescribed, then your, um, the amount of viral shedding that happens is cut in half. The amount of viral mm-hmm. shedding is still pretty low, um, anywhere from like 1% to 10% of the days per month. So that's how often someone is virally shedding, like 1% to 10%, depending on where you have it, which type of infection, um, whether you are male or female or have male or female parts. So there's a lot more nuance to it. And so I can just say in general, it's still fairly low in terms of the percentage of time that you're virally shedding. But if you are taking a suppressive therapy, um, not only necessarily to reduce outbreaks, but then you could also reduce viral shedding and risk of transmission, and that cuts that percentage in half. Cool. Now, I've heard of people taking Valtrex even when they don't test positive for herpes and then going to a play party and feeling like they're more protected. Have you ever heard that, or do you know if that's true? I heard, I just read an article about that the other day. Yes. And um, there is some, there are, there's not a lot of research around that, that states that it's a good, it's a good way in which to reduce risk. There really isn't anything um, substantial that says yes, 100%. There is Mm -hmm. some thought process and I've heard it mentioned. I, like I said, I just read an article the other day that said that this could potentially help. It is certainly mm-hmm. something you could consider if you were interested mm-hmm. and you wanted to kind of almost like taking PrEP, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but PrEP, mm-hmm. which is the HIV prevention, has been, has been studied. So there's significant, um, there's significant documentation in, in journal articles and scholarly articles, I should say, that, that attest to, yes, that's absolutely a great preventative, preventative option. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I guess... Unfortunately, I don't have a, a solid answer. I don't necessarily have, think that there's anything wrong with that. I think it might be a good approach, especially if you have a, a partner or two or know that that's a potential. Um, and in a play party, I mean, you get five or six people, and then one of them definitely, in terms of statistics anyways, already has herpes. And they might not know it either. Yeah. If they don't, herpes right. isn't regularly tested. So they might right. not know because they might not get active outbreaks. But even if the person right. who has it, 
doesn't get active outbreaks, they could transmit it to someone else and the person who gets it may be a person who ends up getting active outbreaks. So there's no mm-hmm. rhyme or reason that way outside of how your immune system works and your, your own body mechanics. Right, right, right. Wow, there's so much to talk about on this subject, but I just want to say for people who might be tuning in late, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com, and we're speaking with Janelle Marie Pierce, the executive director of the STD Project and the founder of the Herpes Activist Network, and she's just a wealth of information about herpes and other STIs and STDs, and we're just scratching the surface so far. Um, one other thing, oh, if you do have any questions for Janelle, please feel free to call in our guest number, which is 657-383-1132, 657-383-1132, and you'll be uh, waiting on hold, and then we'll just go ahead and answer your call when we have a free moment. Um, so one time I went to a swingers convention and there was a man there who was a professor of human sexuality from a major university. And he was speaking to the swingers and he was saying, okay, I'm going to give you some information to help you stay safe because you guys are going to play anyway. And so in order to reduce your risk of transmitting herpes, he recommended that after you play with someone, you take a shower within half an hour. It doesn't have to be instantly. Um, and don't scrub off the top layer of skin. Just put some soap on your skin and let the shower water rinse it off and the idea is that the if you did come in contact with with a um, shedding cells that it it wouldn't have time to adhere to your skin Um, but since you're saying it has to have mucous membranes then that doesn't make any sense with the rest of your skin so would it work to put the soap on your mucous membranes and let the shower water rinse it off. Is there any merit to that at all? Do you, do you see any, is that a good tip to share or is that just kind of nonsense? It's, it's, it's kind of nonsense. <laughs> it's, the, okay. it's the easy answer. Um, it's okay. interesting because it's probably not with, it probably was not administered with the worst of intentions. Um, but let's mm-hmm. talk about as this applies to herpes specifically, and then I'll broaden that. Because if we're talking about other STIs, it's not necessarily the worst idea. Um, but with mm-hmm. herpes in particularly, it does need, in particular, it does need an entry point into the system. So if you're waiting a half mm-hmm. an hour after sexual activities, you already, herpes has either entered your system or it hasn't. If it's a, if it's a mm-hmm. cell that's sitting on your skin, your skin is a natural barrier and it already helps mm-hmm. prevent infection. So if it's mm-hmm. not in a place where there's a small tiny cut or tear and or it's not in a mucous membrane, then you're not going to contract it. Herpes is also mm-hmm. a very, um, a very uh, what's the word I want to use, unstable virus. And so immediately once it gets out of the body and outside of a moist, warm environment, it begins to die. So it's basically, it can't be transmitted after it's hit the air for a couple of minutes. So this is also why Mm -hmm. people don't contract herpes from towels and toilet seats because the virus has already died and is no longer living and it has already become a non-issue. So in terms of herpes, Mm -hmm. no, that's, it certainly makes no difference. Now I do if I immediately, like if I'm applying a Band-Aid or like I said, I get herpes outbreaks on my butt cheek and so sometimes I put Band-Aids over it just so there's no friction and it makes it more comfortable for me. And if I put a Band-Aid over it and I touch it, I'll go wash my hands just for 
the good idea, like in, in, in theory, it's a good idea, but there's usually there's no risk. I mean, I've touched my outbreaks time and time again, and I don't have herpes on my hands. Now, you can transmit it to other parts of your body, but that's how it doesn't transmit that easily, I guess, is a good example of it's not just getting rubbed all over the place and immediately now you're going to have it everywhere. That's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. For other STIs, yeah. though, um, I actually don't think that that's a horrible idea because some things are just transmitted from touch. So like um, molluscum does need an entry point, but scabies are little parasites, um, scabies, the parasites especially. So scabies as well as pubic lice, all you have to do is touch someone's um, infected genitals that has this parasite on it, and then you can have the infection. And so, yes, if you showered afterwards, that may slightly reduce your risk. Is it going to be a giant reduction? Not necessarily, because if it's already kind of there and starting to make its way through your system and, and or on your skin and your body, on your body, then you may be without, without a whole lot of luck. Um, another good, though, actual true idea is a lot of folks assume that after engaging in oral sex that the, the giver, that the giver should go and immediately brush their teeth. So people make that assumption mm-hmm. like, okay, well, let's clean my mouth out and make sure that I don't have any infections because you can get a lot of these infections orally from, from giving someone oral sex and enjoying oral sex. Right. However, brushing your teeth um, can open up tiny cuts and tears in your mouth uh, along the gum line and things with that toothbrush. So the better idea, and this actually is a small risk reducer, is to use mouthwash, not a toothbrush, but right. mouthwash to help kill any right. infection and bacteria that may have been in your mouth. So, I mean, there's some, sort, there's some kinds of hygiene things that can potentially limit or reduce risk a little bit, like also keeping your pubic hair instead of shaving it all off. Shaving your pubic hair actually puts you at a higher risk. Um, Mm. But I'm fully shaven because I don't care. I'm aware of my risk. And, you know, so it's not like I'm discouraging people from going bald, but the bush is is coming back in style, I feel like. So, you know, (laughs) do whatever you feel like, but know some of those things that actually can – some of the things you think are reducing your risk, like maybe being completely bald and not having hair for pubic lice or something to live in, that's actually increasing your risk of infection. Brushing your teeth increases your risk of infection. Mouthwash would be a better idea. Um, and a shower afterwards can't, ne- can't necessarily hurt, but I wouldn't say it's a giant risk reducer either. Got it. Thank you. And then what are, uh, you know, in the play parties that I've gone to over the years, it's pretty common for people to use condoms for intercourse, but to have completely um, uncovered oral sex in all directions. Um, And I'm talking about hetero parties, um, not gay parties so much. I don't really know. I don't go to a gay party, so I don't know what they do. But in my life, in the straight parties that I've gone to, oral sex without barriers seems to be the norm. So what are the odds of contracting herpes genital to oral or oral to oral or and what what are some things people can do to reduce that um or are barriers really the only way to reduce the risk? That's a really good question. In my early 20s, I dabbled in in the swinger lifestyle as well and um so was at a few parties and things like that and that was my experience as well that like most folks were using condoms for penetrative sex whether it was anal or vaginal but then most folks were also not using condoms and, and or barriers or dams or anything of that kind 
um, for oral sex. So um, in terms of reducing your risk, yeah, I mean, I guess to put it on a spectrum, right, there's not a percentage because there's a lot of nuance with risk. So um, to make a really simple scale in terms of level of risk from least risky to most risky sexual activity. So um, manual sex like hands is going to be, or I guess even like dry humping in clothed or, Mm -hmm. or even, yeah, clothed, um, dry humping first, and then manual sex with hands, oral sex would be next. So that's kind of medium risk. Um, Penetrative vaginal sex, would be second to last, and then anal sex is most risky. Um, Not because Mm -hmm. any of that's bad or good. The risk scale is truly to do with your biology and how these infections are transmitted, whether there are fluids Mm -hmm. involved, and whether there is a potential for small and tiny cuts and tears and such. So long Mm -hmm. story short, um, that's actually your continuum, right? So if you're in the Mm -hmm. oral sex and you're engaging in that and enjoying some oral sex, like high five again, but um, there... In terms of reducing risk, barriers. I mean, barriers is going to be the best. And lube, lube also helps reduce risk because it reduces friction. So you could do some flavored mm. lubes. Um, it's mm. not, I know, it's not a, it's hard to, it's hard to, I hate to say we don't use the word should at the STD project for anything because I don't think anyone has the right to tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing with your body. My idea is I, I believe in empowering people, like providing them with all the facts and information, the resources, what the relevant risks are, what risks are out there and how to reduce them as much as possible if they want to. And some people will decide that, well, because oral, oral sex isn't as risky as penetrative sex, either vaginally or anally, I'm not as worried about it. It's a little less risky. I want to enjoy it without barriers. I'm prepared to, um, to be responsible and understand the consequences of that risk. Because for every risk that we engage in, there's usually an equal and opposite reward. That's why we engage in these risks. So I think that kind of sexual responsibility is even is even more important than sexual health. I think sexual responsibility is the umbrella and then sexual health is underneath it, like being responsible for your health and understanding that, yeah, there, something may happen. You may contract an infection. You may contract an oral infection. Could be oral herpes, could be gonorrhea, could be chlamydia, could be HPV orally. I mean, HPV men or, or people with penises can't even be tested for HPV for the low risk strains mm. and even the high, or I'm sorry, mm. the high risk strains and the low risk strains, the ones that cause genital warts, um, those you can only diagnose if there's a visual wart present. So mm. long story short, there is definitely risk with oral sex. People are actually contracting herpes. HSV one used to be known as cold sores and that was all, above above the waist that was considered to be the only kind of herpes that people got above the waist and it was hsv2 that was below the waist however mm-hmm. now more and more people are contracting hsv1 genitally because of oral sex and not using barriers because they assume that there's mm-hmm. so little risk with oral sex when actually there's a fair there's a fair risk in terms of oral sex practices in the uk interesting mm-hmm. fact the uk in the uk um genital herpes is now more often HSV-1 than even HSV-2 for that very reason. Mm. So there are more HSV-1 mm. genital infections now than HSV-2. I mean, when you, when you suss out the two, vir- the two types of viruses, uh, they're pretty much the same, but people 
kind of had this misconception that there was like a good herpes and a bad herpes. And the good herpes was, oh, it's just cold sores. It's no big deal. It's on your mouth. The bad herpes was, oh, it's on your genitals. Like, boo, bad, horrible stuff. And really, they're essentially but, the same thing without going into too much detail. And, yeah, and you can contract them orally. But, but aren't the, if you have HSV-1 on your genitals, is it, are the outbreaks equally painful or are they more minor outbreaks? If you do have outbreaks. That's a good question. That's often where the difference is. People um, with HSV-1 genitally often report that their outbreaks are more mild and or mm-hmm. less frequent and or um, shorter in duration. So there mm-hmm. is a little bit of difference. The outbreaks themselves and how they look are often very similar. The little blisters are like, kind of like a cut and tear that's sore if they get outbreaks at all. Um, but then the people who do get regular outbreaks with HSV-1 genitally often report that they seem to be more mild than the folks who have HSV-2 genitally. So, yes, there is a difference that way for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I like what you were saying about, well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge you and appreciate you for the way that you talk about STIs without shaming sexuality. I noticed that you take great pains to use language that celebrates the enjoyment of sex while talking about these unfortunate conditions that happen while we're all enjoying sex. So thank you for that. Um, So when we are engaging in, what was I going to say? I lost my thought here. Um, (laughs) Oh, okay. So you, so I remember now you said um, that about five to 10% of the month, people could be shedding um, asymptomatic herpes cells. And sometimes they don't even know that they have it because they've never had an outbreak. So they could be a carrier without ever having an outbreak. So if you go to a play party and you play with, let's just say that you're particularly slutty that night and you play with 10 people, the chances are very high that one of those people is going to be shedding cells. And so the only hope that you have if you want to go to play parties and not use barriers for oral sex is to have honest communication um, with your partners. And that comes from uh, lack of shame. So the more we can talk about STIs freely and have safer sex conversations with our partners without shame, the more easily we can then tell our community and people that we've been with that you just positive for something so they can also get tested. So I just want to put a shout out to, you know, removing the shame of sharing when you have tested positive for something so that other people are aware of it and they can take the necessary actions. Because totally. if you're just having I sex mean... with random people, like if you pick somebody up in a bar or, you just meet a random person on the online app, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just that they may never tell you if two weeks later they test positive. Whereas if you're in a community of people that are seeing each other frequently, there's, it's more normalized that we're going to report, that we're going to share in the Facebook group, hey, guys, I just tested positive for something. You know, if you've been with me or someone I've been with, you better get tested. And and I'm just so happy when I see that happen. It's just such a game changer. Oh, that's awesome. That is so 
that is so refreshing to hear that that kind of conversation happens in those in online groups and spaces like that, you know, like you're talking mm-hmm. about these communities. This is, I mean, that's exactly how, this is where I will use the word should. That is exactly how it should be. I mean, I would love to see mm-hmm. that, the, to normalize the conversation. And when I say that, I think sometimes people get taken aback. They're like, well, you're trying to normalize herpes and make it cool to have herpes and ew, no one wants herpes or whatever. And I get that nobody wants an infection, that no one wants an STI or STD, especially herpes, because it's so highly stigmatized. I don't want herpes either, but I have it. I mean, (laughs) so (laughs) like if I could, if there was a way to cure it, like a vaccine that didn't have high levels of risk and side effects and long-term concerns or something like that, like, sure, I would probably take it for two reasons, because I get active outbreaks and they're a nuisance, and secondarily, because then I wouldn't have to worry about transmitting it to my husband. I mean, so all of those things would be a plus as long as there's not some giant level of risk. If there was a giant level of risk involved, then I would probably just carry on with my herpes. But I get that nobody wants to sign up for some additional infection because I also don't want the cold or the flu tomorrow. You know, I want to feel good and resilient and energetic every day that I wake up out of bed. You know, I want to live this life the best way I possibly can. But I think that's the problem is without, and that's where we we are so, we get caught up in it. It's like we forget that if we can't talk about it, if we don't make it an everyday commonplace thing, the majority of people have HSV-1 or HSV-2, whether it's oral or genital. I mean, there's, it's such a large number of people that have this, this infection that it's like we need to be conversating about it. It needs to be commonplace dinner table communication, especially between partners. And if we were having that talk regularly, then the folks who didn't talk about it, those would be the red flags. Like that would be the odd people out is like, wait a minute, why isn't why isn't this discussion occurring? And, and yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like you, you were saying numbers wise. So like for, and this is where it gets a little bit specific with HSV-1 versus, versus HSV-2. So people with HSV-1 asymptomatically shed about around 5% of the time um, in the first year of infection, but that goes down after the first year of infection. In the first year of infection with HSV-2, people shed approximately six to 10% of the time. So out of what is that 10% of 30 days out of the, out of the month is three days out of the month, or Mm -hmm. so maybe anywhere from like one to three days out of any month. Mm -hmm. And that's in the first year, but over time, as someone's had the virus for a long period, longer period of time, then that, that gets reduced as well as Mm -hmm. if somebody is taking suppressive therapy um, another big risk reducer, of course, is those barriers. That cuts your risk of tra- of contracting it in half if you're using the barriers. It doesn't cut it I'm out entirely. I'm sorry to interrupt oh, you, but fine. I Go have ahead. a bunch more questions that I want to ask you, and we're running out of time. <laughs> this is such a juicy topic. So you said that just by touching a sore doesn't mean you're going to get it on your skin. You need mucous membrane. So my question is, if your mucous membrane does come in contact with an asymptomatic shell, cell and or a sore, will you necessarily contract it or can a strong immune system or just other factors prevent you from contracting it? There's no way to say 100% yes or no in that way. They've never, they've never tested and put like one cell on a mucous membrane and said, okay, now, you know, does this, 
does the herpes begin basically? Does the infection mm-hmm. start? Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and a, a resilient and super healthy immune system will help you suppress the infection, but it won't mm. ward off the infection. So it will help you suppress outbreaks. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure about the viral shedding, though. I don't know if your immune system plays in, into part with viral shedding. I'm not sure if they actually know that officially either. So, but it will right. actually help with outbreaks, which also reduces risk of transmission. Because keep in mind with outbreaks, you can have like some people get outbreaks and it's like just a tiny, small irritation. They don't even really know they're having an outbreak. Um, because right. it's a minor, minor kind of thing. So that would reduce that amount of that kind of thing too. So it reduces risk. Cool. And then if you already have herpes, can you get another strain of it? Can you get it again? You can. That's a really good in question. You can get another type. Um, they don't, there are different strains of each type. Type is HSV1 versus, versus HSV2. There are different strains as well, but we don't usually break that down and nobody picks those out like they do when we're talking about like HPV or HIV, for example. Um, but you can get, you can have both HSV1 and HSV2. However, this is interesting too, and this can be helpful actually, especially in a poly community, right? If you have one strain, you're less likely to contract another because you already have some antibodies in your system. Um, So that Mm. is where your immune system and antibodies can play a part. So say, for instance, you get cold sores and you've had cold sores since you were a kid, you're less likely to contract than HSV2 either either hmm. location, orally or genitally. So that's something that can be, you know, if it's more normalized and more commonplace conversation, asking a partner like, hey, do you ever get cold sores? Like, I have genital herpes. Do you get cold sores? Oh, you do. So that means you're probably less likely to contract my herpes. Cool. Let's carry good on. Good to know. Yeah. Thank you. And then I have to have mm-hmm. you back again because we're just scratching the surface. So, um, uh, you know, you mentioned that a lot of, providers don't test for herpes and I've heard that to be true that you a lot of um, doctors and practitioners will say that they only test if there's an active outbreak but sometimes you can pressure them to give you a blood test for even without symptoms Um, so can you share a little bit about getting tested see if you might have an inactive form of it and then also um, maybe touch on asking for throat swabs for STIs that are transmitted, like tracheal gonorrhea and so forth. Can you touch on those two topics? Sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So testing for herpes is controversial. It's not currently recommended by the CDC and most um, obstetrics and gynecological associations and things and sexual health uh, authorities. And that's because the tests are not easily available. They're all widely varying in terms of their efficacy. So you would have to know what kind of test you're getting. You can test for the antibodies and or the virus, and they have different rates of accuracy that way. Um, The biggest, though, real reason why they don't test regularly for herpes, despite people all wanting to know whether they have it or not, when you ask the general public, they're like, well, of course I want to know, and of course I I want my partner to get tested, so on and so forth. But it's because the test does not determine where the infection is located. So if you've never had an active outbreak, 
um, then and you get tested, they could say, okay, yeah, you have herpes. And depending on whether what type it is, some tests don't even determine the type, which is also problematic because then you're less likely to know where it's located. But now, like I said, HSV-1 can be both orally and genitally and vice versa. So it doesn't, if you test positive for HSV-2 and the test determined that that's what type it was, you don't know the location of the infection. So it makes it hard to really do preventative things and to be aware um, and practitioners feel, a lot of practitioners feel as though unless you have a partner who has the infection, so you have a true relevant current risk and or recent risk, then they won't blood test you. A lot of them will really try hard not to. You're going to have to advocate or find a different practitioner. Now, if you go to like Planned Parenthood, um, you can pay to get a blood test and or you can pay to do a blood test online. But again, you can get false negatives. Those are very mm. common if, you, if your antibodies aren't high enough or if it's a recent exposure or recent infection. So there's a lot of nuance there, and that's really why they don't test regularly for them. But with all that information, mm-hmm. I think people can help to, that can help people go forward and make a decision. Your second question mm-hmm. about oral swabbing. Yeah, just uh, swabbing. because we're almost out of time, but, yeah, the swabbing. Uh-huh. Yes, you can definitely get an oral swab, and that's often why they, practitioners will ask you weird questions or what seems to be like uncomfortable or slightly invasive questions about your actual sexual activities, like have you had oral sex, what kind of sex, and, and when, and with whom, and what type, and all of that. And it seems like why do they really need can't I just pee in a cup kind of situation. Well, if you pee in a cup, it's not going to, it's not going to detect an oral infection. So that's why it's important. Like maybe you did just enjoy oral sex with a couple of partners and you didn't actually have any penetrative sex. Then you want to make sure you say that so that they will then swab your throat to check for infections in your throat as well. Peeing in a cup will only determine your genital infection. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, how common is it to get, uh, what are some of the infections that you can get in your throat from oral sex besides herpes? And how common is that do you know how common that is to get in hetero kind of swinger communities? Um, I wouldn't necessarily call out swinger communities or poly or ethical non-monogamy communities because it's still fairly common in all communities and in, in mm-hmm. people just enjoying oral sex. And um, you mm-hmm. can get, especially bacterial infections are the infections that you're most at risk for orally as well as some additional viral infections like herpes, for example. Um, but the bacterial infections that are most common would be trick, trick trichomoniasis, uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and, and HPV. I should call out HPV as well because HPV can cause oral cancer, um, and that is slightly on the rise. It's still relatively rare. Cancer is caused by HPV, although scary is still relatively rare. Most people don't end up with cancer, even with the high-risk strains. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, I hope you'll come back again because we haven't even really gotten to talk about some of the other STIs and STDs, um, and this has been so informative, and I want to give you some time to tell our listeners um, about some of the work that you're doing, how they can reach you, and you gave me this long list of acronyms, so if I give you about four or five minutes to share with me some of the other groups that you're involved with, um, please just go ahead and tell us uh, what you want us to know. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be happy to come back. I know it's like when we start talking about this, because there's just, it's, it is, there's so much information and this is probably one of the many reasons why they don't address it comprehensively 
uh, like they should in our educational systems. But I digress. So yeah, so if you want to reach out, you want to find me, you want to see what I've written and find my work, um, the stdproject.com, as well as I am the spokesperson for positivesingles.com. That's a website for folks who dating folks with an STI. And then we just recently launched the Herpes Activist Network. It's called HANDS. That stands for Herpes Activist Networking to Dismantle Stigma. And there are 20 activists now. We are across the globe. We are all people who are living with herpes, who do activist work. We're open and public about our herpes experiences. And so there's tons of different, each activist kind of has their own specialty and focuses on certain audiences and or does like podcasts or YouTubes and and I'm also on, on podcasting and YouTubing and all over the place. So please come find me on social media, like happy to chit chat and yeah, absolutely happy to come back. Anytime. Cool. And you also, yeah, thank you. I was also curious about the Pornhub's sexual wellness center. Oh yes. I'm that one of their, I'm one of their writer experts. So I, I write for Pornhub last year or maybe a little over a year ago now. Yeah, maybe it's been about two. They launched a sexual wellness center, and I reached out to them and said, if you're going to launch a sexual wellness center, you're going to need an expert on STIs and STDs. So I write a monthly article. I do freelance work for them. I do freelance work across the, across the web, like for Self and Allure and Exogene, hepatitis c.net as well so you can see my work and my writing on all of those sites the most recent post that i just did for Pornhub was the difference between sti and std and i kind of break that down and the nuance behind that the ambiguity behind it so if you're curious hop over to Pornhub's sexual wellness center and see what we're talking about there fabulous well thank you so much janelle you've been a delight and i hope to have you back sometime within the next uh, few months it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for being receptive to this topic and open to discussing it. It has. I can't believe this hour went by that fast. Thank you kindly. It really did. I think it was the fastest one ever for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, have a great evening. Thank you so much. You too. Okay, bye-bye. So next week, please join us again on Leading Edge Love Radio at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, where we'll be speaking with Shane and Heather, the creators of the Sacred Sex Game, which is a beautiful American-made um, piece of art. The game itself is just a beautiful art object, and the game allows uh, couples, triads, foursomes, and morsums to... Uh, deepen their intimacy and their um, sacred sexuality through the game. So um, please join us next week on Leading is Love to learn about that, and we will see you next time. Good night, everyone.